Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. You know, you're going to go to the state house on your first day. You're going to get there, and you're going to take a long look at yourself. You're going to look at your colleagues. You're going to look at the building, and then you're going to look at yourself, and you're going to ask yourself the question, how in the world did I get here? (laughs) But then a few weeks are going to go by and you're going to take another look around at the building, at yourself, and then at all your colleagues. And you will have gotten to know them a little bit better. And you're going to ask yourself the question, how in the world did these people get here? (laughs) Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. muchachos and bienvenidos to the Lions of Liberty podcast. We're back once again for the 313th episode of this program. It feels like it's got to be an unlucky number. I don't know, but we're going to hope for the best anyway. That means you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 313. And I've actually been sitting on this interview with who some are calling the next Rand Paul Eric Brakey, state senator from Maine, who is running for the United States Senate in 2018. Been sitting on this interview for a couple weeks. I did happen to push it back because I was able to book Phil Magnus to talk about Hurricane Harvey and price gouging and all sorts of relevant issues a couple weeks ago. So I wanted to make sure to move that one up while it was still very relevant and very on people's minds. So now I am pleased to bring you my interview today with Maine State Senator Eric Brakey. Today's guest is currently a state senator in Maine, where he successfully led the effort to pass constitutional carry in that state. He also served as the Maine state director for the Ron Paul presidential campaign in 2012 and the Maine state campaign chairman for the Rand Paul presidential campaign in 2016. If all of that wasn't enough, he has recently announced his candidacy for the U.S. Senate in 2018, which would make him the youngest senator in history. I am pleased to welcome... Mr. Eric Brakey. Eric, are you ready to roar? I'm ready to roar, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Sure thing, Eric. And, uh, you know, I've I've kind of been following your political campaign, I guess, over the last year or two. I've seen a lot of talk of you. And then, of course, when you recently announced your Senate run, I actually heard people start to call you the next Rand Paul. So that's certainly um, a compliment, I think, (laughs) from from most people. And uh, we'll get a little bit more into uh, what you're doing politically in a moment. But I kind of want to first start by ticking the clock back a little bit and and finding out what makes you tick. So uh, first of all, how did you first become interested in politics? Well, you know, I grew up in a political family, and truth be told, I was always interested in politics from a, from a young age, though unfortunately I was, uh, I- until I became a little older, I didn't find the libertarian side of politics, but I remember being in my second grade class, I remember we did a, a class election, and I think I was the only person in the class to vote for Bob Dole, all my, uh, all my fellow students were voting for Clinton, though. <laughs> Now that I look back on it, I don't know that either one was a very good choice. Right. Um, but but oh, I've always been interested in politics, and it really was uh, it was around 2010, the Tea Party wave, that my oldest brother Matt kept putting uh, Ron Paul in front of me. He gave me Ron Paul's book, The Revolution, uh, and kept sending me uh, videos by by Jack Hunter. And eventually, that uh, took me from being someone who who used to be, I'm ashamed to say, a bit of a just someone who just watched Fox News and believed that being a Republican and being a conservative was 
whatever Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly told me it was, to finally opening my eyes, feeling like I was pulled out of the matrix a little bit, and and following Dr. Ron Paul in his in his campaign for liberty. Well, Eric, it is okay because um, I've, I've admitted this on the show before, but my very first vote for president was for George W. Bush in the year 2000 because I was the same way. He just seemed, uh, I thought there were two sides to things and I thought that seemed like the better side. I don't think I thought about it much more deeply than that. But finally, sometimes it takes something to sort of snap us out of that two-party paradigm. And for you and for many of the people that listen to the show, including me, uh, it, t- it took someone like Ron Paul to really speak uh, in a totally different way than you were hearing other politicians speak at the time to really snap you out of things. So was there something specific that you heard Ron Paul say? Was there a specific moment or maybe a specific policy position that he took that really shook you awake, so to speak? Well, I I think like so many people coming from the right, the first things that I agreed with him on were the economics and limited government when it came to domestic policies. But having come from, you know, (laughs) voting for John McCain and believing he was the champion of the Republican cause in in 2008, um, it really took me a long time to finally let go of, of the neoconservative tendencies on foreign policy, to believe that our, our government could just uh, and our, we could just use our military to recreate the world and, 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 sh- and nation build and, sh- and shape other, other countries' direction. So that was the last thing to, for me to let go. But the moment I was willing to let go of that and the moment I was willing to see that, that government these government institutions that we say are, are are corrupt and inefficient on the domestic side of things. The moment I was able to acknowledge that there's no magical fairy dust we sprinkle over the Pentagon that makes it anything other than in an in, in inept government bureaucracy. That's when I I kind of jumped full full feet in, and I it, you know that was in 2010. I that was the year I graduated college. I moved to New York City. I was working as a professional actor there in the theater. And I just started volunteering with a local grassroots Ron Paul act, uh, activism group that ended up leading to a job with the Ron Paul campaign for the for the for the presidential cycle. Brought me home to my home state of Maine, and I've been there ever since. I think when it comes to the um, sort of far, foreign policy, it really is difficult for many people to to break from the the narrative that we're told from regardless of our political affiliation, from the time we're children in school, we're basically just told that the United States is a beacon of freedom, a beacon of liberty. And in many ways, it certainly is uh, from its economic policies and a lot of the, like the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Uh, that's certainly there. But then it, it's glossed over the, the fact that many of our interventions in our in our recent history don't really follow along those lines. And, and there seems to be a, almost a religious fervor that builds up with us as we're children. We say a pledge to the flag. We're shown patriotic films. And when someone questions that that entire line of thinking, it can really cause a bit of a synapse in someone who has really felt that that sense of patriotism their whole lives. Did you experience any kind of anxiety over that or did you sort of snap out of it right away? Well, it it really was, you know, being someone who is so political from a young age and really believed in 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 the foreign policy that we had under George W. Bush, it was very difficult for me to let go. It really had become part of my identity. And it was difficult to even allow myself to question it. And I think that's what's the trap that so many people find themselves in. But the moment I, I, I really realized two things. First of all, we we are in a war of ideas across the world. There is a war of ideas between free markets and liberty and capitalism on, on the one hand and totalitarianism, statism, uh, communism, fascism, these, these, uh, these extreme government ideologies on the other hand. But you don't win a war of ideas with bombs and bullets. 
And that's how we've been trying to fight this war of ideas. And it's and we're failing. We're failing in the Middle East. We think that we can wipe out radical ideologies by just blowing people up. And unfortunately, it just radicalizes more people and makes our problems worse. You know, this isn't the, the direction I plan to go, but the, what you were saying just there really reminds me so much of, of current events in a way that are going on here in the United States. Because, you know, as you know, the events in Charlottesville recently, a lot of the justification for a lot of the violence on, on the Antifa side of things is that these people are, are they have terrible views. They are racist. They are neo-Nazis. And uh, therefore, we, we must... Ju- you know, violently attack them. That's all we have. That's our weapon we have to use is violence. And but I mean, what you're saying right there, it really is the same approach that a lot of people take to foreign policy. They don't agree with us. They're doing things wrong. Let's drop bombs until things get better. Here, it seems to be these people are wrong. These people are evil. They're racist. Let's, you know, let's punch them until they get better. (laughs) Watching what happened in Charlottesville, and I think we all kind of I hope that we all kind of kind of look at what happened and and, and shake our shake our heads in, in shame. But, um, you know, watching that unfold, I couldn't help but be reminded. I don't know, Mark, if you've ever read uh, The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek. Yeah. But I, I remember very specifically, I, I read this book when I was first uh, first understanding the liberty movement and understanding Ron Paul's message and wanting to delve deeper. And it's, I, if anyone, any of your listeners haven't read F.A. Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, I highly recommend it, you know, after you read Economics in One Lesson and The Law by Frederick Bastia. But uh, but he talks about how when you look in the in the early 20th century and you had the fascists and you had the communists fighting in the streets, fighting against each other, killing each other. And we had this narrative that fascism and, and, and communism were opposites. But really, the reason they fought so much was because they were fighting for the same minds, right. the same kinds of people, the same kinds of people who would accept an ideology where government and authority is in control from the top down. But these these totalitarians on the right and the left they had absolutely no common cause at all with classical liberalism with uh you know what we would call libertarianism today and so it's it's sad to see i feel like the same thing is playing out in our streets in america today you have far right fascist totalitarians on the, on the right uh you have uh communist totalitarians on the left and they're fighting each other and this is the narrative that's being put before us. You have to pick one side or the other. But I think the real choice is to reject both and, and embrace a philosophy of liberty, a philosophy that says we don't we don't want communists or fascists ruling over us. We want to be able to rule ourselves. Yeah, and just like with our foreign policy, when we go right to violence, it really only emboldens and empowers the the violent side of things. I mean, from from all accounts in Charlottesville, there was maybe two hundred or so actual white supremacist type folks, and uh, when but then when they go attacking them and focusing on on them, and thousands of people come to try to assault you know assault a, a rally based on those specific people, based on those two hundred or so people. Well, now you've just put more attention on those movements and more focus on it and made that alt-right or or white supremacy or neo-Nazi. I don't want to lump them all together because I know these things are very nuanced in many right. ways, but it, it really does make that that side of things more powerful. Same goes the other way. I don't mean to come from one side either. I mean, if, if neo-Nazis start showing up at Antifa rallies, rallies and attacking them violently, it's the same thing. It really only empowers that other side. And I think we see the same thing in our foreign policy. When we see yeah. things we don't like, we see people we don't like, and we drop bombs in, in response to terrorism, all it does is embolden those terrorists and help them recruit more. Right. You might kill one terrorist with a bomb, but how many 
civilians have you hit? And those civilians have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who now have a reason to, to hate our country and our foreign policy, and it radicalizes them. You know, I, I will say back to Charlottesville, you know, I think, you know, there, there are very legitimate things to protest these days. There are scary things going on in our government. Um, it seems like no matter which party is in power, these scary things persist going on. But, you know, I think Martin Luther King really set, set uh, the example that the most effective form of protest is nonviolent protest. And I think the, the sad things, you know, on both the right and the left, but you look at Antifa, for example, and their willingness to use violence to protest what they see as fascism. Well, if they really think that our government is, is fascist and moving towards fascism, then I would think the last thing you would want to do is have a violent move, movement that turns off the ma mainstream America to, a, a, and makes them afraid of you so that they're more willing to accept government control and authority to crack down on these violent protests. Uh, if, if their goal really is opposing fascism, they're, they're handing them all the power that the fascists would need. Shifting back to your political career for a second here, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they first get inspired by the ideas of liberty, they really feel the need to go out and tell people about it to the point that it can sometimes become annoying. I was certainly accused of that uh, back in the early Ron Paul days when I was posting an endless stream of, of YouTube videos featuring Ron Paul. Um, but, you know, so, and some people decide to go ahead, go on and eventually start blogs or, in my case, a podcast, while others choose to take the political path, which is what you chose to do. And uh, so I, I'm wondering what, first of all, why did you decide to specifically to run for Senate in uh, state Senate in Maine? What, what inspired you to take action and, and run for political office? Well, I'll tell you, you know, after the Ron Paul campaign finished in 2012, and for, for folks who uh, may or may not recall, here in Maine, we were one of the few states where we actually won the state. We won all the delegates going to the national convention uh, until, of course, we got there and the RNC didn't like the fact that Ron Paul supporters won uh, Maine, which is a neighboring state to Massachusetts, Mitt Romney's home state. So they uh, kicked out half of our delegates, and uh, I was one of those 10 kicked out. And anyway, there were protests and everything ensued. Folks can look back on that if they're curious. It, let, let's get into that a little more, actually, because I mean, I do remember, yeah, sure. remember those times. And uh, so was it the RNC? Because people do forget that Ron Paul actually had the number of delegates you need to win certain states. And uh, they actually changed the rules, I believe, at the last minute, I think, from, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you needed five states to be guaranteed a speaking spot. And they changed that rule to eight states because Ron Paul would have gotten a speaking spot at five. But they actually, you said they actually de disbarred, I guess, I don't know what the actual term is, some of the delegates from Maine. And you were one of those. So, so who, who actually did the removal of the delegates? Was that the RNC? Yeah, so it's essentially done by uh, the RNC had a, there's kind of a first panel uh, that judges contest brought forward against uh, delegations. A uh, contest was filed by some disgruntled establishment folks in the state of Maine. Um, and they recommended that you know, half our delegates be taken away. They would they would have actually re recommended that all of them be taken away, except that our governor threatened to uh, boycott the convention if if they did. They thought they would split the baby and just take away half, and he still boycotted the convention because of it. So I have a lot of respect for him for that. But um, so this first RNC panel made that recommendation. Then it went to the Committee on Credentials, which was made up of two delegates from all the different states. But the, the interesting thing is we look at these these panels – um, and these bodies, like they're, uh, it's it's set up as if they are these independent bodies that can be fair and and equitable. But it's the RNC, and at a certain point in the process in, uh, of of nominating a presidential candidate, 
the RNC and the presumptive nominee kind of become one entity. So right. you kind of had a situation where the Mitt Romney campaign was bringing forward uh, a contest against the Ron Paul delegation from Maine. And then the RNC, which was really the Mitt Romney campaign, was determining the contest. And so you kind of had a situation where they were the prosecution and the judge and the jury. And that's what we found ourselves in. A lot of people, not just from Maine, found it incredibly unfair. Uh, we had a lot of support from many delegations like Iowa, members of the Texas delegation, Oklahoma, a lot of states across the country, uh, not just protested the, the illegal removal and, uh, of, Maine, of Maine's delegates, but also protested this kind of hijacking of the rules that was taking place on the floor of the convention. What strikes me about that is, I mean, there was no threat at any point, really, at any point in 2012, of Ron Paul actually winning the nomination. So what is the motivation for these people to go so far out of their way to remove delegates, to try to make sure he doesn't get a speaking spot, when there was really never a chance that he would he would actually pose a threat to winning that nomination? To this day, you ask me what they were thinking. You know, I always have thought of the old saying, don't kick a dog while they're down. Apparently, they'd never heard that saying because... <laughs> or they heard it and, and just decided it wasn't good advice. <laughs> right. Well, because we were down. We didn't have the numbers. Ron Paul wasn't going to get the nomination. At best, we wanted him to have a, a, spe- a speaking opportunity and not a speaking opportunity where he was going to have to, you know, submit his speech ahead of time and have everything censored out, you know, that was not uh, not acceptable. But no, we were down and they just kept kicking. And they... And I, and tr- in truth, I think by doing so, they... Uh, they, they, you know, what is what is it? Obi Wan Kenobi said, you know, strike me down, I will become more powerful than you could possibly. Something imagine. along those lines. <laughs> <laughs> I think they did that to the Liberty Movement, and I think that it was actually a a very defining moment for the Liberty Movement, where we stood up for ourselves, uh, we stood and fought, and I think that we are stronger for it. So is that sort of what happened to you? Do you get struck down there at the RNC, and did, did that help inspire you to go ahead and, run, and go back to Maine and run for office? It certainly gave me a lot of experience of standing up to people who are maybe these these big names who, who we might see on TV and we might think that they're intimidating. They're like these demigod fingers, uh, these demigod figures out on Mount Olympus, and how how dare we uh, we dare not you know direct address them or how dare or, a normal citizen come try to uh, hang out with us here <laughs> in our mountain? <laughs> well, exactly, and and I will say I think sometimes even as libertarians we can. Uh, uh, I, I know I did. When I first got involved in politics, I would look at uh, the even our state legislators, our state representatives, our state senators, and I would look at them and think, yeah, they're these they're these figures at the Capitol. They're 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 these special the special class of human beings. And 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 no, truthfully, they're just normal people. They're incredibly flawed people. And I always think about what someone said to me uh, when I first got elected. They said. You know, you're going to go to the state house on your first day. You're going to get there, and you're going to take a long look at yourself. You're going to look at your colleagues. You're going to look at the building, and then you're going to look at yourself, and you're going to ask yourself the question, how in the world did I get here? <laughs> but then a few weeks are going to go by, and you're going to take another look around at the building, at yourself, and then at all your colleagues, and you will have gotten to know them a little bit better, and you're going to ask yourself the question, how in the world did these people get here? <laughs> and when you get really into, and I'm sure it's entirely the same 
on the federal level in Washington, D.C., there's nothing special about these people. There's nothing untouchable about them. Sometimes I feel like we put like this sacredness around elections, like you, people go into the booth and something you know, magical happens and someone come, uh, you know, someone is elected who's ordained on high. But really, no, two people are on a ballot, people show up, and one person's name gets checked more than the others. You know, when I decided to run for office, I was, I, I was just barely constitutionally eligible to run. I was 26 years old. I'd never run for office before. People didn't know who I was. People said I had no chance whatsoever, especially because I was running against a guy who was an incumbent Democrat who'd been in office, various offices in the area, consecutively for almost 40 years without losing a race. But I decided to put my name on the ballot. I went out. I worked really hard. I knocked on 8,000 doors, talked to a lot of people. And with the help of the Liberty Movement, we uh, broke state fundraising records uh, for that race. And that race that I was told I had no chance, we could never win, uh, the establishment even tried to find people to run against me in the primary, uh, we ended up winning the general election by in a t- near 20-point landslide. Wow. And that's, I mean, that's just going out and doing the work. And going out, and I, I think back to something you were saying before, I do think as libertarians we can sometimes be guilty of, uh, of, of, talking too much and not listening enough, especially when you're running for office. You know, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. So sometimes that's the hardest part of me hosting this podcast, because I always want to talk, but I actually have to listen when I'm a host. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And that's what it's like as a candidate. You know, truth be told, most people, uh, most people just appreciate it when a candidate will come to their door and listen to them, listen to their, their issues, listen, listen to their concerns and you might not always completely agree on something, but especially when the other guy hasn't showed up, hasn't, uh, they've never met, met them, even if they don't agree, agree with me on all my libertarian points, the fact that I listened to them, the fact that I took their issues seriously, and I thoughtfully tried to communicate how we can use a liberty-minded approach to tackle those problems, people appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And do you think that was really the key to your victory that, I mean, were you trying to take the approach of knocking on doors to convert people to libertarianism? Or were you more just taking that approach of, I want to represent you, what are your issues and and really trying to absorb their feelings more so than necessarily trying to convert them to an entire philosophy in in whatever amount of time, face-to-face time you might have with them? Yeah, you know, in a door-to-door interaction, you really only have five minutes with people. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to convert someone to libertarianism in five minutes. So, so really, when you're going door-to-door, what what you're really trying to do is demonstrate that you'll be an effective voice for them. And and I will say, you know, I have my district has been a lean left district uh, over over the years, but I have won so much support from not just the conservative Republican base because of work I've done on welfare reform and Second Amendment issues. But I've won a lot of support from independents and Democrats because I've got one of the most independent voting records in the Senate. You know, it's interesting. I simultaneously am ranked the most conservative member of the main Senate, but I also have the, one of the most independent voting records because I, uh, I follow my principles. I don't follow my party. I don't follow my leadership. Uh, sometimes my, my party's in the right place. Sometimes they're not. Uh, and sometimes I cross over and you know, work with Democrats on issues like criminal justice reform and drug policy reform and civil liberties. Sometimes I work with Republicans, like I said, on welfare reform and and Second Amendment issues and and lowering taxes. And then sometimes uh, I'm all completely alone. (laughs) Sometimes both parties are pushing a corporate welfare bill, and I'm the only one to stand up and say this is wrong and, and 
the, the vote ends up being 34 to 1. But I think that's what's missing so much in politics these days. We have too many people who show up, who get elected to office without an idea on what exactly it is that government is supposed to be doing. They don't have a core philosophy. They don't have core principles. And so they just end up getting swept along with what party leadership tells them is the, is the approach they should be following or what special interests tell them is the approach they should be following. Uh, we, we need more people with principle. We need more people willing to stand up and follow those principles. So when you were elected to state Senate in Maine, it, it seems like you got to work pretty darn quick and you were instrumental. I don't know if you were necessarily the, the one who introduced the bill, but I know you were a big part of passing the bill, at least this constitutional carry bill. So how did you go about tackling that piece of legislation? Why was that something you focused on right away? Well, I did sponsor it. Uh, I was the sponsor of that bill. And I will say when we passed that legislation, we did a lot of very good good work on that. I worked very hard on it, but it really was something that had been an effort for a long time to get this legislation passed. You know, just two years prior, another Ron Paul Republican state legislator named Aaron Libby had sponsored the bill. And just as a a libertarian activist, I'd been very involved in organizing grassroots efforts to support constitutional carry two years prior. I saw how close we got to passing it. In fact, in the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives two years earlier, we fell only one vote short. And so I was very confident we, uh, as Republicans picked up seats in the House and had a, 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 a large majority in the Senate. I was confident we could we could make it happen. So uh, I put in the bill. I worked very hard on it. I worked with groups like the NRA, the um, the National Association for Gun Rights, and local groups like Gun Owners of Maine and the Sportsmen's Alliance of Maine. And we had grassroots people contact their state legislators, flood their phones, flood their email addresses, um, with to, uh, asking them to support this bill. I will say, oftentimes, I think that we regular people back home don't always appreciate how much power we actually do have in the legislative process, especially on the state level. I know in the state of Maine, if there's a bill that comes along that a legislator doesn't particularly feel one way or the other about, or maybe they lean one way, but they're not you know, solid, five contacts from five different of their constituents, whether it be phone calls or emails, that can be enough to change their vote. And, and I've seen a lot of a lot of legislation succeed or fail by a single vote. So people have a lot more power than they realize, and we should be exercising it. Three, two, one. Hey, folks, I'm Remso W. Martinez, the host of the one, the only Remso Republic podcast. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking, to be exact. This is a pitch for another show. I already listened to too many. But hey, I've got news for you. Each and every Wednesday, you can escape the mindless entertainment and loud political pundits by escaping to the place which truly is the clash of punk rock and politics, the Remso Republic. From comedians to politicians to real-life superheroes and liberty activists, we don't stick to normal often as we hard charge each and every week to bring you the freshest entertainment and news in an ocean of shows fighting for your attention. We're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many more platforms. Don't miss out. Join the fun and be awesome. Stay up to date with the latest news and updates by visiting remzorepublic.com. Let's get into what you're currently shifting your focus to a bit, and that is your run for U.S. Senate. So why did you decide that you weren't just going to stay there in Maine your entire political career? It was time to take things to the federal level. Why did you decide to follow in the footsteps of, like I said, I've seen a couple articles where people are calling you the next Rand Paul or at least posing the question. So why did you decide to run for Senate? 
You know, for me, every step along the way, ever since the Ron Paul campaign onwards, I've always asked myself the question, what can I do right now in this moment to best serve the cause of liberty? In 2014, when I saw that there was the opportunity to run for that state Senate seat, I said, all right, this is the thing I can do right now to best serve the cause. And I've and then running for reelection again in 2016 and winning by an even bigger margin. Um, and every step along the way, I've just been trying to do what I can do best to serve. And I've been in a really unique opportunity and I've seen so many uh, opportunities to serve the, serve the liberty movement that not everyone else would have access to. And it w- always would feel I would feel so much shame if I saw an opportunity to advance the liberty movement and I just walked past it by. And I said, you know, I'd rather be doing something else. I'd rather be doing something else to enjoy my life right now. Well, not everyone will have these opportunities. And if I say no, then that's a real that's a real letdown. So here in Maine for the U.S. Senate seat, I think we have a tremendous opportunity. Maine has been shifting. Historically, if you go back for 40 years, Maine has been a, a deep blue state. But just since about 2010, that's really been changing as the Democrat Party has shifted more and more towards this kind of social justice warrior party uh, that has really left a lot of the more blue collar working class people in the Democrat Party feeling like that party doesn't really represent them anymore. Uh, that's why I was able to win in 2014 is I reached out to a lot of those people who didn't who were who were Democrats and former Democrats. Um, and that's been a winning formula for Republicans in the state of Maine since 2010. And for the first time in, for, well, I think forever, actually, the RNC has, has decided that Maine is, in fact, a battleground state for 2018. We have the governor's race coming up. We have the U.S. Senate race coming up. And I think that the current incumbent, Angus King, now he's a, he's a quote-unquote independent. He ran as an independent. He won as an independent. He sold him. His whole branding in 2012 was Angus King, independent like me. But the moment he got there, he went and he started caucusing with the Democrats, and he hasn't looked back since. He has a very partisan Democrat voting record. In fact, it's a more partisan Democrat voting record than many actual registered Democrats in the U.S. Senate. And I think that the main people have begun to really see through that. Uh, he's not the independent he promised he was going to be. He's not even an independent like Bernie Sanders. I mean, truth be told, if you look at his voting record and the issues he stands for, he's not a he's not a Bernie Sanders style progressive. He's more of a Hillary Clinton crony capitalist Democrat. Uh, he's he's big on corporate welfare. He's personally uh, he's personally profited from uh, corporate welfare schemes that he's that he's set up. He, you know, he got uh, a multi million dollar federal loan out of the Obama stimulus package for a wind company. And for that, he got a several hundred thousand dollar success fee. So that's paid for directly by the American taxpayers. And that goes right to him? Yeah, he, he personally got that success fee working as a consultant for, for this wind company. Oh, how nice. Now, that was before <laughs> he was elected to the U.S. Senate. He couldn't necessarily do something like that so, so directly today. Uh, but he's personally profited from corporate welfare, and he's continued to advocate for that. Now, me as a state senator, I, I, I'm in a unique position. I think I'm one of the only Republicans in the state who has consistently and very vocally opposed corporate welfare. It's something that Democrats like to say they own this issue on. But truthfully, they're, they're just for corporate welfare for their own, <laughs> for their own special interests. I think we can take a, take a message. Our campaign message is liberty for the little guy. 
It's about, you know, right now in Washington, D.C., we have big government and big corporations running the show in bed with each other. And the only thing we little guys back home get, we get the bill for it all. We get the $20 trillion of national debt plus the $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities. If you take all of that and you divide it out among every taxpaying American citizen, that's a bill of $1 million per person. Yikes. Now, Mark, <laughs> I don't, Mark, I don't know if you or any of your listeners have an extra million dollars to spend. Yeah, but I mean, I think, I, do- I think I'm doing okay, <laughs> but if I, if I had that bill show up in my mailbox, I'd be, uh, I'd be, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> well, I'll just say, if any of your listeners do have an extra million dollars to spend, I'd like to talk with them, and they can go to ericbrakey.com slash donate and help us make this campaign happen. Absolutely. Yeah, but one more question I want to ask you um, about uh, about Angus King and like how he's he's elected as an independent, but he's obviously uh, a, basically an establishment Democrat. Why does someone like that market themselves as an independent? Why do they go through this election process as an independent – instead of actually using that Democratic Party apparatus, I imagine that would sort of be the easier pass, at least I would think so, to use an existing party as opposed to just labeling yourself an independent. Is that more of just a marketing thing? Is that because a lot of Mainers maybe may be more independent-minded? Well, for Angus King, I think it, it all started when he ran for uh, when he ran for governor years, years and years back. Um, he was going to run the Democrat primary, but uh, he, he saw that he didn't have a chance in the Democrat primary, so he unenrolled as a Democrat and ran as an independent. And he's been a, uh, a registered independent ever since. So nothing but more than is, the path to victory for him, basically. Yeah, but it is good branding. I mean, it is, it is good branding in the state of Maine because we are a very independent state. We really don't – I think more than most other states, we kind of – a lot of Mainers really reject both parties. There are more uh, unenrolled voters – in the state of Maine than there are registered voters in either the Democrat party or the Republican party. And, uh, and that's, and actually that's why I really believe Maine is ripe for a more libertarian message, a message that says we believe in fiscal responsibility and also in social tolerance. We want to leave, leave people alone to make their own choices in their own personal lives and spend their money as they choose. Uh, you know, here in Maine, in this past election cycle, we had several referendum on, referendums on the ballot. One was a referendum to have universal uh, gun background checks. Uh, this was a Michael Bloomberg-pushed uh, background check initiative uh, that would have put new gun control restrictions in place. Uh, this was on the ballot in, all, in, in four different states across the country. And the other one was to legalize marijuana. Now, the interesting thing is both the legalization of marijuana passed and gun control failed. So you, when you think about that, these are issues associated with opposite sides of the aisle. You had the same voters come out and vote no for gun control and yes for legalizing marijuana. This is really this, this independent libertarian center of our state that just wants the government to leave them alone. Just let them live their lives. Let us live our lives. We don't need kings in Washington, D.C. trying to dictate our affairs from hundreds of miles away. Well, that's a great line. I hope you're using that uh, that double entendre <laughs> of the king in your campaign. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Eric. Well, actually, one more thing I want to ask, because I know you mentioned you're, you were an actor. I know you spent some time in New York City acting. I believe you still dabble in it now. Uh, and do, do your acting skills help you as a politician? And that's not to imply that you're up there putting on an act, but I imagine there's some crossover in a lot of the skills you would need on, on a stage as there is to, say, you know, giving a speech in front of a crowd and that kind of thing. The interesting thing, when I was, when I was studying theater, one of my acting teachers, one of the first rules they gave us is the the secret to acting 
is don't act. <laughs> you know, if you're faking it, you're not really doing a good job. Uh, you know, so much, so much of acting is actually just actively listening, putting yourself in other people's shoes, listening to people. And I think those, in fact, those are a lot of the qualities that people want in people who represent them, someone who is willing to listen, someone who is willing to put themselves in their shoes and try to understand where they're coming from. It really, I mean, it has served me in my ability to communicate with people. It has served me, you know, I remember when I first, uh, in, in high school, when I first got into theater, I, I, <laughs> I would get huge stage fright. I would stand up on stage. I had the huge jitters and I could barely get a word out. Uh, thankfully doing years of, of, of theater has made me a lot more comfortable to the point where I can stand up on the floor of the Senate and argue very articulately for why, uh, we should follow, uh, liberty on a certain issue. I can stand up in front of, uh, you know, a, a town meeting and, and, and talk to my constituents. I can go on the campaign trail and, and I can talk to huge crowds. It's something that, uh, it has helped me in a lot of ways. All right, Eric, I'm going to give you a chance now to give uh, one final pitch to my listeners out there all over the country and all over the world, really. We do have listeners from, from various countries, but uh, I, you probably can't take campaign donations from those ones. So why don't you give one pitch to everybody out there that's listening of why they should support the Eric Brakey campaign for Senate, regardless of whether they're in Maine or not, because this is a national position and obviously a senator can, can affect things for people all over the country. Well, here's what I'll say. First of all, I'm really honored that I've been endorsed by both Congressman Ron Paul and Senator Rand Paul. Those are pretty good endorsements, I'd say. I, I think so. They're my heroes, and they're the, they're the role models I want to follow in Washington, D.C. And in fact, I think at this point in time, I am the only person in the entire country running for federal office who's been endorsed by either one of them, uh, incumbents excluded. And then I'll say, you know, Maine is a very unique state. Uh we, we have some good senators in this country. We've got a great senator from K Kentucky. There's half-decent senators from states like Texas. But I will say, those states are very expensive to win U.S. Senate seats in. Maine is a very small population state, and it's very inexpensive compared to a lot of other states in the country to invest and win a U.S. Senate race here, especially as Maine is increasingly becoming a swing state, and it's very real and very possible. So I would say, Anyone who wants to further the cause of liberty in 2018, Maine is the place to invest. This is our greatest opportunity. This is where any dollar you invest in our campaign for U.S. Senate goes further than in any other state you could do it. If someone is motivated to uh, make an investment and contribute and help our campaign, be that $25 or $50 or even $100, you can go to ericbrakey.com slash donate. And you can go to our website, you can see our campaign announcement video, see what we're fighting for. And if you feel so moved to chip in and help the cause of liberty, not just in the state of Maine, but if we win this U.S. Senate seat, that'll be a benefit for the liberty movement in the entire country. Then I, I would ask you to please consider going to ericbrakey.com slash donate. Well, Eric, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you and learning more about how you got where you are right now. And uh, with any luck, hopefully some listeners out here will want to help you get to an even bigger level, because Lord knows we can use some some better voices for liberty on the national level. Ron, Rand Paul does a pretty good job, uh, but he's also pretty lonely in there, so he could probably use some company. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thanks a lot, Eric. Take care. Take care. All right, friendos, I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Maine State Senator Mr. Eric Brickey. I know I had a blast talking to him, so hopefully you guys will take interest in what he is doing. And uh, if it's true what the people are saying, and honestly, based on my conversation, he is uh, very much 
sort of similar to Rand Paul, maybe even better, dare I say? I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. But, uh, you know, Lord knows we can use more great, strong senators in the Senate. And right now, I will say, despite some criticisms we've had with him over the years, there's no doubt Rand Paul is currently the most pro-liberty senator. And he really did something amazing the other week when he forced a vote on the AUMF, the Authorization for Military Force, which has been the excuse for every war from Iraq to Afghanistan to Libya to our involvement in Syria. Uh, Basically, everything in that's happened in our foreign policy over the last 16 years, and it never gets voted on. Now, uh, that vote did fail, but at the very least, we now have 61 senators on record as being for unlimited war, and I think it was 30-something that voted to end that authorization. So, of course, it still exists, but if we can get more Eric Brakey's in there, more guys that you know would vote to end that, I mean, I don't see how anybody can really argue with that end result. So, despite how different the opinions of libertarians might be on, when it makes sense to be involved in politics, some libertarians believe any involvement is unjust. I don't agree with that opinion, but if you can do something that can actually lead to at least maybe not ending wars right now, but making the public more aware that there even is such a thing as the authorization for military force, uh, I think that's a positive thing. So if you liked what you heard from Eric Brakey today, do look into him a little bit more. We'll, of course, link to his website over in today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 313. Another thing I'll link back to is our Hurricane Harvey projects. We are working with Gret Glyer and the DonorC app to fund some great projects there uh, with the recovery in Houston. We are still helping to provide funding to the Cajun Navy, who has been doing an amazing job, a group of volunteers down there in Houston, helping people to recover and rebuild and escape from their situations. And we are also still helping to fund Daniel Lee's project. Again, Daniel is a great supporter of the show, uh, one of the very first members members of the Lions of Liberty Pride and one of the first $25 members. And we are trying to help pay him back a little bit by helping him and his family rebuild from the devastation that they experienced due to Hurricane Harvey. So please do check out both of those projects, which we link to over at lionsofliberty.com slash Harvey. I also want to give a big shout out to our friends at We Are Libertarians. They just had a big live podcast at a local comedy club out there in Indiana. They donated half their door to Daniel Lee's project, half their door proceeds. So we really do appreciate all the help from all the other podcasts. Of course, our man Clint Rankin has been corralling all the Liberty podcasts to focus on certain projects and we are now seeing a lot of the results of these projects as uh, Gret and Daniel have both been posting updates so we can see in real time. That's what's so amazing about this app, Donor C. We can see in real time the results of our donations as opposed to, say, the Red Cross where you send them money and they even now can't tell you how much money has been taken in to help Harvey victims, uh, how much is actually going to those victims. They can't give you any of that information. Meanwhile, you go on the app, the DonorC app, you click a button, you donate a few bucks, and you almost immediately see the results of that money. So I think it really is a revolutionary thing. Uh, Know what else is revolutionary? Our format here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. As far as I know, we are the only libertarian variety show out there. We have great interviews like the one you heard today with Senator Eric Brakey. Of course, every Wednesday, Brian McWilliams brings you his weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty with Electric Liberty Land. And every Friday, John Odermatt wraps it up by doing a deep dive on the broken criminal justice system. We really try to provide something for everybody here. And if you just can't get enough... 
You can go ahead and join the Lions of Liberty Pride for as little as $5 a month. You can get access to all the exclusive audio that we've published here in 2017. Over 30 plus original podcasts we've done so far with plenty more on the way. We've got another episode of Conspiracy Corner coming pretty soon where we'll do a deep dive on the John F. Kennedy assassination. I actually posted a preview clip last week that some of you may have heard by now. If not, be sure to go click back in your podcast feed and check that out. I posted a clip with some of our past bonus segments with Dave Smith, with Tom Woods, just to give you a sense of what we're doing in the Lions of Liberty Pride because we really do work hard to make sure you guys... uh, Now, a lot of you don't even care that we're giving you extra content. You just want to help us grow the show, and that's awesome, but oh well. We're going to pound you with new content because that's how grateful we are for the people that do chip in their very hard-earned dollars to help us grow this operation, help us pay our bills, and eventually expand this show to an even broader reach when we have the money to really pump into a strong advertising campaign. So this show really will become whatever you guys want it to. We're very open to your feedback. Of course, you can give us feedback by joining our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just type Lions of Liberty Forum into your little search bar. I'll ask you a quick question to make sure you're a real human being and not a spam bot. We'll get you right in to join the conversation. And of course, if you're new, you can check out the plethora of podcasts we've done over the years over at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast for the full archive. I don't think I mentioned that quite enough. So go ahead and do some homework. If you're new here, there's plenty of podcasts to catch up on. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.